Morning, Liberty. How's everyone doing? Let's uh, let the kids go to their classes. Why don't we all stand and we can pray. After we pray, they can head out. God, thanks so much for your word. Thanks for the privilege of being here today to worship you. Thanks for the worship team and their service. Um, God, thank you for everyone that um, does stuff behind the scenes today and throughout the week to make um, this service goes smooth and well, God, and we thank you, Lord, that you um, call us to you um, to be yours, God. So we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. We ask that you would bless the um, catechism teachers as they um, instruct our children, give them a heart for our children, God, and may our kids come to know you um, at an early age, God. We do pray that you would be magnified and glorified today in our midst. Amen. All right, turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 26. It says, Have no fear of them. Now the them here refers, as we saw last week, back to verse 17, beware of men. So it's talking about men or mankind. Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will, be, that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men... I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So last week we looked at not fearing man, and we saw that over and 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 over in the Bible, we are told not to fear. In fact, I encourage you at some point in your quiet time um, to jump on the internet and use a concordance online and type in fear not um, or do not fear both of those and see all the times that it occurs and all the places that we are told not to fear. Um, this is true for man we're not to fear, our problems we're not to fear, fear, life's issues we're not to fear. However, as we see here in this text, there is one being, one person we are to fear, and that is God. We must remember, God and God alone has the prerogative to punish people in hell. Um, Satan's not in hell having a little party, enjoying the fact that people are getting sent there to party with him. No, he is on this earth doing much damage and destruction. Uh, But the Bible says one day he will be cast into the lake of fire, and he will receive an eternal punishment, and it will not be pretty for him. It will not be a party. Um, So when we come to this concept of fear, there's two aspects to it. Most of the time when we think of fear, we think of negative things. We think of uh, things that aren't very positive. Uh, But there's a flip side to fear that the biblical writers understood, and it's kind of been lost today. Um, They used it not just in a negative way, but in a positive way as well. Um, Again, when it's used towards men, it's negative. When it's used towards God, it's positive. Uh, We see a refrain over and over in the Gospel of John, which focuses on the negative, and it's this. Fear of the Jews. 
Fear of the Jews. So John 7.13 says, Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Again later in John 19, it says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And again, the disciples themselves, John chapter 20, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So there's this running theme. There's a couple other places where it talks about the fear of the Pharisees or the Jews were feared. The men, the disciples, people, people that maybe in some way loosely associated with Jesus were afraid of men. What did this fear do for the disciples? It made them run and hide. These guys were knocked down. They were in despair. They were ready to give up. Why? They were fearful. And here's the thing. Fear of men is what we're commanded to not have. Amen? So here's the thing. When Jesus is talking here, it's as if he's giving a rebuke to his disciples, which he was pretty good at doing on a regular basis. And there's... A sense here where he's saying, if you're going to be fearful enough to fear men, then just take it to its logical conclusion and, and, and really fear God. Because if you're, going to, if you're going to be afraid, or if you're going to cower, or you're going to do something like that, then, then fear God, because he is the one that can send you to hell, that can punish you for eternity. So if you're going to have any type of fear, and it's going to have any negative connotation to it, then, then this is the fear you should have, and this is what it should be, this is who you should be fearing, God. But there's another aspect to it. And the world doesn't see the positive aspect, um, in part because the word has changed meaning over the years. Our word phobia actually comes from the Greek word that we see here three times. Okay? The Greek word is phobeo, and that's where we get our word phobia today. Um, phobia is whatever, a fear of fill in the blank. There's all sorts of phobias. I, I looked it up. If, if, if you can think of something, there's a fear of it. Seriously, there's like hundreds and thousands of them listed. You want to know what the worst one is? Bibliophobia. The fear of books, all right? I know some college students who have that fear. (laughs) There's even uh, a porphyrophobia, the fear of the color purple. I mean, it's crazy. Look out Barney, right? You know, the purple dinosaur. And there's even a phobophobia, a fear of fear, okay? I think John F. Kennedy encouraged us towards that, right? The only thing we have to fear is, is fear itself, right? So basically, there's a phobia for everything. Those phobias are negative. Um, but when, when we are commanded to fear God, it's positive. Because it's really not the cowering aspect that is uh, envisioned by many of us. Uh, we are not being being commanded to be afraid of our Heavenly Father. We're not being commanded to do that. God is a loving and gracious and kind and compassionate and merciful God to his children. There wouldn't be any cowering involved in that. So let's try to understand what it means to fear the Lord um, and how we enact this commandment. To to do that, I'm going to give you actually um, a little Hebrew literary lesson. All right, you ready for it? 
You ready? All right. Um, Hebrew poetry um, has many different styles. Unfortunately, we lose some of it in the English. Um, It's beautiful in the Hebrew. It's beautiful in the English. But it has many different styles. Uh, One of the key ones is this. It's called Hebrew parallelism. You guys know what parallel is? You know, parallel lines. What happens with parallel lines? They never intersect, right? They're just, they're going along the same line, so to speak. The, the idea is very similar. So when you have in Hebrew poetry, Hebrew parallelism, you have what's considered balanced repetition or symmetrical arrangement. The lines of a text are directly related in some way. We see this a lot in the Psalms, uh, also in the prophets when they're giving their proclamation uh, either to the nation of Israel or to the surrounding nations. Let's look at a couple examples. Look at Psalm chapter 24. Okay, so the lines of a text are directly related in some way. Verse 1, The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Do you see the parallelism there? Okay. The lines of a text directly related in some way. For he has founded it upon the seas, that's the first parallel, so to speak, and established it upon the rivers. That's the second parallel. Keep reading. Who shall ascend the holy hill of the Lord? The first parallel. And who shall stand in his holy place? Second parallel. Again, lines of a text directly related in some way. All through Psalm 24 here, you see... The parallelism. Um, There's actually different types of parallelism. We're not going to get into it. But the one that's important for us today in understanding the biblical text is called synonymous parallelism. Synonymous. What does uh, synonymous mean? Come on, y'all. Same, similar. Okay, you guys pass. Uh, Let's see. Let's look at Psalm 19. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now, look at the first parallel. The heavens declare the glory of God. Is the second parallel just repeating it in a different way? The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Yes. Synonymous parallelism. Uh, Look at verse 2. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Synonymous parallelism. It's being restated differently, the same idea. Restated differently, the same idea. Verse 3, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Verse 4, their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Again, we see it in verse 4. Voice goes out to the earth, words to the end of the world. Same idea Restated a little bit differently. Okay, that's important because what I'm about to show you is key in our understanding of what it means to fear the Lord. Um, The writers of the Psalms and the prophets and other places in the scriptures used this as a literary device to explain the truth of God in a very beautiful way. Look at Psalm 33. Uh, Let's start in verse 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. 
Again, we're seeing the parallelism, right? Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Verse 4, for the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Again, the parallelism, right? He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Okay, so here is the synonymous parallelism. The first part, let all the earth fear the Lord. Now that second line is the same thought stated a little bit differently. What's the different thought? All the people stand in awe of him. One of the aspects of fearing, of fearing the Lord is being in awe of him. Being in awe of him. Let's keep reading Psalm 33. We're going to stay there. Verse 16. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. There's just parallelism, right? Close to synonymous, but not quite. Verse 17, the war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on whose hope, excuse me, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Again, we're seeing the parallelism. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Okay, so another aspect of fearing the Lord is hoping in his steadfast love. Now, if you don't understand this word steadfast love, I think um, the NAS goes with loving kindness, NIV, unfailing love. Uh, King James translates it mercy. Most of them are pretty consistent in translating this Hebrew word for their particular versions. But this is a key word. I taught on it some time ago, and it's the Hebrew word hesed, if you remember. That Hebrew word Hesed. And Hesed always has to do with covenant faithfulness. Covenant faithfulness. It is about God and his faithfulness, his loyalty, his goodness, his mercy, and love. Usually used in reference to his children. So here when it says, on those who hope in his steadfast love, what is it, what is it describing about us regarding the fear of the Lord? Our trust in who God is. He's the God of steadfast love, the one who remembers his covenant, who keeps his promises, who will not forget, who holds us up and sustains us. So there's the aspect or element of trust in fearing the Lord. Look at Psalm 147, verse 9, it says, He gives to the beasts their food, and to the young ravens that cry, his delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Again, we're seeing that aspect of trust when it comes to the Lord. Trust in him. And it says the Lord takes pleasure in that. A couple more verses. Psalm 112 
Verse 1, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. What do we see here? Obedience is part of fearing the Lord. You're delighting in the commandments of the Lord, right? You're obeying them. You're happy to do them. You are willing to do it. You want to do it. This man wants to follow the Lord here. Look at Psalm 128. We'll see a similar thought. Verse 1, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Again, that parallelism, right? The second part sheds light on the first. Everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Obedience is part of fearing the Lord. Nehemiah says something similar. You don't have to turn there, but in Nehemiah chapter 1, when he's praying, he says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He's preparing to go before the king. It is a delight to trust in the Lord and obey him. This is why we have Proverbs, like Proverbs 8.13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Right? If we're delighting to do his commands, if we're obeying him, if we're walking in his ways, then yes, it would make sense that fearing the Lord is a hatred of evil. It also makes sense why Proverbs 9.10 would say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Again, if we're trusting the Lord, if we're walking in obedience, that puts us on the path of wise living, of making decisions that are God-pleasing. Then we have the example of Cornelius. Look at Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10 it says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Then look at verse um, 21, <clears throat> after they go to Peter and get him. He says, Peter went down to the men and says, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. This term... Um, God-fearing man is only found a couple times in Scripture. This is one of the times it's found to describe Cornelius. Now, this is before his salvation, but I want us to note that it described him as a God-fearing man, and I want us to note what surrounds the description of Cornelius that would give us, the reader, the idea, yes, he is a God-fearing man. Look back in verse 2. He's devout, a devout man. So he has right living internally. He's devout. Second, it says, he gave alms generously to the people. Right acting. And then it says, he prayed continually to God. He's seeking the Lord, right? To the best of his ability as an unbeliever. He's seeking the Lord. Right living, right acting, and seeking a right relationship with the Lord. That 
is the idea we get of Cornelius, the God-fearing man. He's trying to live out it to the best of his ability. Um, what about us? If, if someone had to dis- give a description of you, what, would, what, what adjectives would be used? What description would be given? How would people describe you? Because Cornelius basically had a testimony, right? Kind of a pre-testimony, so to speak. Um, but people knew who Cornelius was. They knew who he was. Um, we have a testimony as believers. And we have a testimony, and whether our testimony is good or bad, we still have one. And our kids see it, and our spouse sees it, our neighbors see it, our boss sees it, our coworkers see it. Um, we have a testimony that we are giving. And if they said, oh, John, what's the description that's going to come to their mind when they think of you? Okay, Because lifestyle is key when it comes to fearing the Lord. Listen, you can fool me. You can fool us here. right? You can fool a lot of people, but you cannot fool the Lord. All right? He knows your heart. So if you're putting on a show... And some of you might be. It really doesn't matter eternally whether I know or not or anyone else here knows because God knows. And he knows the condition of your heart. And he knows whether you truly fear him or not. Does the Lord have you? Does he really have you? Are you one of his? I mean, does he really have you? All of you. Not just part of you. Not just Sunday, Sunday morning you. But all of you. Because he wants it all. He is a jealous God. He wants 100%. He settles for nothing less. And if there's some area of your life that you're not sacrificing to the Lord, you need to surrender it. You need to sacrifice it. You need to offer it up on the altar to him. Listen to me. There's, there's this aspect of right living. There's this aspect of right doing, of right thinking, of right knowing. Um, there's also an experiential side, which I hit on with the idea of awe when it comes to fearing the Lord. Uh, think of moments when people in the New Testament and Old Testament came into God's presence. What was their response? In Second Chronicles 5, there's the story where the glory of the Lord fills the temple. Now picture yourself there. For a moment, everybody, everybody, close your eyes for a second. Picture yourself. The glory of God is filling the temple in Jerusalem. You are literally, physically seeing it. How would you feel? Or you can open your eyes. How would you feel? You'd be overwhelmed with awe, admiration, reverence. I mean, you'd just be literally blown away, right? You'd be like, wow. Think of Isaiah when he sees the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6, right? He has this vision. The king's just died. This scene unfolds, right? And you get this sight of him in God's very presence. He's freaking out a little bit, right? He should be. But he's not running away, right? And God wants him in his presence. He wants him there. 
with him. And God cleanses him. What about Peter at the transfiguration? Look at Matthew 17. Matthew 17, verse 1, it says, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now, especially in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, when you see those two words, um, and behold, verse 3, it was a literary device. I'm still teaching you guys about Hebrew literature, right? It was a literary device where it wants the reader to pause and mentally picture the scene. Okay, and behold, literally, that's what the reader wants you to do. He wants you to behold it in your in, the, in your mind's eye, so to speak. So we're reading. He was transfigured before them, verse two, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, that's what he wants you to pause for a second and think about that, and then picture what follows. There appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. All right, got to love Peter. Because he, he, he always is ready to do something, even if it's not always the right thing. So he's not quite sure, sure what to do here, right? So what does he say? He's like, um, yeah, let's make some tents, okay? We'll just set up a little shop here, and I'll get a little place for each of you guys. It's like, what? <clears throat> But he's in awe, and he's overwhelmed by what he is experiencing, and he's trying to comprehend it and not being able to fully do so. You ever had that experience with the Lord? It is a powerful thing, and it is a sweet thing. Think of Mary and Martha, the experience they had when their brother Lazarus came out of the tomb. All right, he comes out, he's still wearing his Wrappings. I mean, we wouldn't just say, "Oh, yeah, there he is, man." What took you so long, Lazarus? You know? No, we'd be we'd be blown away. We would be in awe. We would be awestruck. One of the best, I would say, summations of this aspect of fearing the Lord is seen in Hebrews twelve. If you look at it with me, let's start in verse twenty-five. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore... Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. All right, so do you see that aspect of God being all-powerful? He's this consuming fire, right? Even before in the verses we read, but we are given reassurance as his children, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. What's our response? Worship the Lord with reverence and awe. Walk in the fear of the Lord.
Okay, so fearing the Lord entails trust, hope, confidence, awe, wonder, reverence. All of those things are included in this idea of fearing the Lord. Let me encourage you with something. Some of you might be worn down, ready to quit. There probably needed to be a few more hands than just five when Hannah gave her exhortation, all right? Um, Because life can be challenging. Um, Let me encourage you not to quit. Um, God tells us in Lamentations 3, his mercies are new every morning. And I don't know about you, but I need those mercies every morning and every night and throughout the day, all right, even when I don't know it. God is the renewer. He's the renewer. He's the reviver. If you're feeling down and out, he will pick you up, okay? He's the redeemer. He does not forget his children. He doesn't forget them. He will not forget you. He will take you. He will remake you. He will be faithful to his promises. You know what I like about this church? Well, many things. One of the things I like, though, is I feel like we're, we're and I'm being serious, I feel like we're on a team. Um, and I feel like that we here, as a body, are in this together. And that we are on the same page working toward a common goal. Uh, whether it's coming together for a conference and working together for the Foundations Conference, whether it's just this weekly service and everything that it takes, whether it's a 625 campaign and us coming together, whether it's through service in the basement and different... I mean, just... I feel like we do a good job, a very good job, in trying to come together. Is there room for improvement? Sure, there always is. But I feel like we're coming together. But here's the thing. Um, I feel like some of you are sitting on the sidelines. And we need you in the game. All right, there's no bench warmers in Christianity. Um, I'm coaching my uh, 11-year-old son's team, Job's team. There's a variety of talent on, on his basketball team. <laughs> some are great, some are good, some are okay. Um, but every week, they come together, and the five that step onto the court step on there, and they work as a team. And if there was only four, they wouldn't win. Trust me, they wouldn't win. <laughs> we barely win with five. But they're on there working together as a team. Every guy counts. And the same is true here. Look, I get it. Maybe you guys are weak on your three-point shot, so to speak. You can't really dribble. But the same is true here as it is on the basketball court with the team. Every person counts. And we need what you do. We need what you do. We need your participation. Every person counts. You know what happens if if we really grab a hold of this concept and we really get real about it? Well, I think we get a picture of it in Acts chapter 9. Look at Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. It says in verse 31, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. Now, I like the first part of this verse because um, Luke is telling us that Acts 1.8 is being fulfilled. 
you will be my witnesses. Where does he say? He says those places. Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Okay? So Luke's letting us know, hey, guess what? When the church is the church, the commission is fulfilled. But he goes on, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. I like that word walking. Yours might say living in the fear of the Lord. But the idea is this. It's continual. It was an ongoing thing. And it implies motion towards something. We're walking in the fear of the Lord. We're going on. We're moving forward. We're not being hindered. What's the result when we do that? When we walk in the fear of the Lord, when we have the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church grows. And it's not just addition, it's multiplication. I mean, it says it multiplied. And that's really what it means. Not just a few here and there. The church is growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. You want to grow personally, you need the Spirit. You want to grow the church, you need the Spirit. Okay? Our human effort alone won't suffice. But we are called to fear the Lord. We are given the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And what is true of the early church can be true of the church today. If we will do it, God will honor it. People will respond. That's a promise we're given. Look, we need to stop and take inventory. It's 2016. Some of you are old. Some of you are older. <laughs> Look, we're, we're not even guaranteed tomorrow, let alone next year. Um, so let's get serious about living for the Lord this year. Today, right now. Let's get serious about dying to self. Okay? Too many want to wear the crown of glory before they wear the crown of suffering. You have to do it in the order Jesus did it, really. It's the crown of suffering, then the crown of glory. Okay? You want to follow Jesus? You want to follow his path? That's the way it goes. All right? We're not promised a pretty, great, awesome fill-in-the-blank life. But we're promised that he will be with us. That he will sustain us to the end. That he will carry us on. So, in light of that, we need to continue on. We need to fear the Lord, which includes trusting him, walking in obedience. It should be evidence, evident to those around us. We need to be awestruck with his majesty have reverence in his presence. Let's pray. Father, you are a good, good father. You are good to us, Lord. Over and over and over and over and over and over again, you are good. You are so good. And we do thank you that your mercies are new every morning. We thank you that you are faithful when we are faithless. We thank you, God, that you pick us up time and time again, that you renew us, that you revive us, that you heal us, and that you, God, promise to sustain us. So I pray for my brothers and sisters here, me included, God, that you would walk with us, God, continue to fill us with your spirit, 
Let us be the people in this church that you want us to be, the team players, God, the participants on the court, Lord. We want to see you magnified. We want to see people added to the kingdom, God. What a privilege, Lord, to be one of yours. May we not take that for granted. Lord, here in our midst today, God, be glorified, be magnified, not just because we're singing or lifting hands, that's part of it, God, but because our hearts are attuned to you, the great God, the mighty one. So we lift you up, Lord, and we praise your name and we extol you because you are who you are the faithful God. Lord, let us continue to walk in the fear of the Lord, to walk in truthfulness, in sound mind, God, in right living. Be magnified, Lord. Amen.